Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's children said, Amen. You probably know from your high school history class that centuries ago, people believed that the earth was the center of the universe. Some people still believe that. That included the assumption that the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets all revolved around the earth. And it wasn't just ordinary people, everyday people who held that view, but many members of the scientific community held that belief as well. This understanding of earth and its relationships to other celestial bodies sometimes is referred to as geocentric, that is, earth-centric. And that was pretty popular, at least until the mid-16th century, when it was challenged by the works of Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, all of whom insisted that the sun, not the earth, was at the center. Gradually, that geocentric model, with the earth being the center of the universe, was replaced by what's called the heliocentric one, with the sun being at the center of the universe. This change was nothing short of a a scientific revolution, or what we would call today a paradigm shift. Just as a refresher, paradigm is a distinct set of concepts and practices that define a scientific discipline at any particular period of time. A paradigm shift then establishes, when established theories collapse and new ideas and new understandings take their place in that shift. The shift from Earth-centric universe to a a Sun-centric one was a, a major transition and upheaval in scientific understanding of the world and the cosmos, but it was hardly a new one. Many other long-held theories in the the history of science, like previous understandings of classical physics, were abandoned when better explanations came out like quantum physics. Here's an example of a paradigm shift. The introduction of germ theory in medicine replaced the notions that miasmas, that is, the foul odors around us, caused illness. Germ theory also replaced the idea that an imbalance between the four vital humors within our bodies, that is, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood, caused illnesses. So these two now discredited causes of illness also challenged the belief that divine judgment or evil spirits were the cause of illness. So now here's a question. When a long-accepted explanation of how the world works breaks down or is shown to be flawed, what emotion most helps scientists investigate further and leap into the unknown? According to Dr. Helen Cruz, professor of philosophy and humanities at St. Louis University in Missouri, she says that particular emotion that causes people to leap into the unknown is awe. Dr. DeCruz says that awe increases our tolerance for uncertainty and opens our receptivity to new and unusual ideas which are crucial for a paradigm change. Dr. DeCruz reminds us that awe is also spiritual and a moral emotion. And like many other folks, she reminds us this. 
all clear cases of awe have two components. First, an experience of vastness and a need for a mental modification about that vastness. Dr. Cruz says that awe is a self-transient emotion because it focuses our attention away from ourselves and toward our environment. She goes on to describe all along with curiosity and wonder as emotions related to our search for knowledge. And she says that a person lacking those kinds of emotions won't have the drive to become a, a good scientist who can change their mind on the basis of the evidence that's in front of them. And that brings me to Psalm 29. Our scripture for today on this Trinity Sunday, as we read the 11 verses of that psalm, it's clear that the writer was in awe of the Lord. Listen again as the psalmist says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over the mighty waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And the rest of the psalm sings in a same similar tone. One leading rabbi among Jewish theologians and philosophers in the, the 20th century insisted that awe is critical for not taking the world for granted. Without awe, we lose the ability to experience the world with any depth or reverence. That means awe truly is a pathway, not only to our knowledge, but also to wisdom, and today, a path to God. Here's our struggle, though. Folks will say, that's fine. Awe is a great thing. But we live in an age where we're not awed by much and we take for granted wonders that previous generations might have marveled at. So how am I supposed to be awe-inspired, Pastor? What you want from me, that you want me to feel guilty because I can't find awe or manufacture awe on demand? Well, no. But awe still happens usually unexpectedly, and we can learn to recognize it and seek to discover what it may be telling us when it does come to us. Theologian Frederick Buechner illustrates awe by telling the story of seeing a forest of giant redwoods for the very first time. He says there were some small children nearby, giggling and chattering and pushing each other around. Nobody had to tell them to be quiet, as we entered, they quieted down all by themselves. Everybody did. You couldn't hear a sound of any kind. It was like coming into a vast, empty room. Bickner was in a, a way describing this paradigm shift. He said, two or three hundred feet high, the redwoods stood. He continued by saying, they made you realize that all your life you had been mistaken. Oaks, ashes, maples, chestnuts, and elms, you had seen them for as long as you could remember, but never until this moment had you so much as dreamed what a tree really was. The kids probably didn't get the life experience to identify what they were feeling as awe, but that emotion was there. And it struck them, he said, when they went quiet. It would be, not be surprising if in that moment one of those kids had an awakening to think about God, about a career, maybe an ecology or nature, or simply just 
fall in love with the outdoors. A love that would have a bearing on other choices he or she made in the future. Awe can set a direction for life and can even move a person toward God. We say that there's something spiritual going on when we feel awe, whether we recognize it as that or not. And there's a paradigm shift when we are in that awe-inspired state. We, we shift from the world is all about me to the, the world is larger than me. Or even this is my father's world. Abraham Lincoln apparently had that kind of an experience. He's quoted as saying this, I never behold the heavens filled with the stars that I do not feel I am looking in the face of God. I can see how it might be possible for a man to look upon, look down upon the earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how he could lie looking up into the heavens and say that there is no God. We know that that's not everybody's experience, and some people do say there is no God. But we should not expect everyone to find God through the same channels. God uses all kinds of gateways to come into our lives, and awe is one such entryway. Awe enables us to sense possibilities we hadn't even imagined before, which is very useful in scientific research, but can also enable us to get some sense of God's presence in and among us. We may experience awe when we are struck by beauty around us, the surge of thunder, the surge of the waves at the ocean, the quiet of a late summer evening. I'm always struck every time we head to the beach and we sit there at night on listening to the waves crash against the shore. Or in the morning seeing the sun come up, sparkling over the water, the waves again crashing in, the wind blowing, the smell of the salt water and the sand. God is here, I often say. I often think it too. But we're, we can also be inspired by other things as channels for God, like poetry and music or the smell of wood smoke in those crisp autumn air times. We might even be awed by the complexity and the effectiveness of the human body. Listen from Psalm 139 when it says, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Awe says to us, this is life beyond what I could ever know. And it's also for many the idea that God is present. A sense of awe is where the impulse of faith often starts. Or as Dr. DeCruz says, where we need to make, and I quote, a mental accommodation for the vastness. Several years ago, a mission team led a group of teens on a backpack trip on the Appalachian Trail in Virginia. In the mid-morning on one of those days, after a long uphill climb, the group arrived at a high meadow with an expansive and, and breathtaking view of the surrounding mountains. The meadow contained one of those three-sided wooden lean-to shelters. They're provided there every so often along that trail, and in that shelter was a logbook where various hikers who had passed through that same place 
signed in and recorded their thoughts. Reading through the entries, one team member noticed one from a recent hiker who commented that the view made him think of the first few verses of Psalm 19. That psalm is similar in its emotional tone to Psalm 29. Among the opening verses of Psalm 19, we read, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. That team member read those verses to the teens with him, and they agreed that the majestic view made them think about God. Theologian Thomas Merton once wrote, Contemplation is life itself, fully awake, fully active, fully aware that it is alive. It is spiritual wonder. It is spontaneous awe at the sacredness of life, of being. It is gratitude for life, for awareness, and for being. It is a vivid realization of the fact that life and being in us proceed from an invisible, transcendent, an infinitely abundant source. Contemplation is, above all, awareness of reality of that source. Let me say that again in a different way. Contemplation is, above all, awareness of the reality of God. Awe was very important for Thomas Merton. And it is for Dr. DeCruz as she wrote in that article, awe is required not only for the day-to-day working of science, but it's also crucial to reorient scientists' thinking in times of paradigm change. She also acknowledged that the emotional drive of awe is what matters in other places as well. And that might be, as she says, our only path to knowledge and wisdom. I would add that it can also be, obviously, a path to God. When you are awestruck about something, it's a good idea to consider what God may be saying to you through that emotion of awe. And to be aware that a paradigm shift may be forthcoming in your life. As you go through your week today, your week this week, let's try that. As you do that, as you live your life, Open your heart, open your mind, open your life to the idea of being awe-inspired, of being overcome by it. It could be a sunrise, it could be a sunset. It could be the hand of a loved one on a walk as you're walking the street. It could be a hug that you haven't had in a long time, right, with COVID. It could be an opportunity to hear a song, to read poetry, to be in quiet. But the awe, let it overcome you, let it overwhelm you. Stay in those moments because there is a message for you from God. 
on this Trinity Sunday, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, the awe of that idea. We may not be able to get our head around it, but that awe should drive us to new knowledge and to seek out the wisdom that God provides and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the words of the Son as we live out our lives of faith in a world that truly needs hope and awe. Amen.